Welcome into the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek for Thursday, July 30th. How are we already at the end of July? Can't quite wrap my head around it. Well, on today's show, we have the founder of the National Pitching Association and longtime throwing coach for Saints quarterback Drew Brees, Tom House. Now, Tom has spent more than 15 years working with Drew and has been with him since his Chargers days, since before Drew's shoulder injury, which he will talk about today in the episode. Tom tweeted the other day on July 24th that he wrapped up his final training day with Breeze after more than a decade of coaching the future Hall of Famer. And we wanted to have House on the show to talk about what it was like. So, Tom, can you just tell us a little bit about um, your, your background and how you got into being a pitching coach? For those of us who don't know? Well, um, it's typical, you know, starting from Little League, I played baseball, ended up pitching a lot more than hitting. Um, I was pretty good in high school. I got to go to USC on a baseball scholarship. Had a couple good years there, signed with the Braves, and actually played professional baseball for about 19 years. Um, nine of them in the big leagues and 10 of them um, coaching. So uh, as a pitching coach, after I actually pitched for a living, I realized how many things I didn't know. So we started doing research on throwing in general. Um, football, we, when I was with the Texas Rangers, we actually threw a football as part of our warm-up. And one thing led to another. And the bottom line, we became not only the research uh, benchmark for throwing athletes, but the physical preparation for rotational athletes. And long story short, being a pitching coach kind of led me into being any kind of a coach that throws or strikes. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious because you found that most of your research and your development of your program, which is now, you know, famous, um, came after you were done pitching. I thought, I think that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, I'm sure you've been involved in sports your whole life. When you look at what you're doing and where you've been, you realize that there's a lot you didn't know. And there's a lot that you could learn based on the new stuff that's out there technology-wise. So I hit that perfect crease between old school, where we depended on our eyes, and new school, where three-dimensional motion analysis and force plates allowed us to see at 1,000 frames a second and energy and foot pounds what it took to throw or swing. And again, lucky, it sounds like it was well thought out. It was very organic. I just got lucky at the right place at the right time. So tell me, Tom, well, first of all, how was your reaction when you were introduced to this first piece of technology? What was the first piece of technology that you were introduced to? And were you just like completely blown away? Because now, you know, you can turn on anything and they have the the best of the best you know you watch the pga tour and everything and pitching and everything what was the that's, piece of technology that's your, that's your generation <laughs> but i can remember in 1986 everybody had video and we were doing video review but that's at the at the best 40 frames a second and kodak came out with their first three-dimensional motion analysis 
technology and it was a big old bulky um, blocky thing that you would put up inside of a, a pitching lab or whatever and it was it, it was very informational but not functional for capturing pitchers and hitters so when I saw what things looked like at a thousand frames a second I went my 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 our eyes have been lying to us um, so I knew as soon as I could find something that would work technology-wise, I would jump on it. And as luck would have it, about six months later, Gideon Ariel was, was up at Cota de Casa with a tennis guy, Vic Braden, who I knew personally. And he said, Tom, you got to come up and look at what Gideon has come up with. And we bought an aerial system. I actually um, mortgaged my house and bought a... Uh, a, an aerial 3D motion analysis system. And we started capturing anybody that would let us capture. We did racehorses, we did hitters, we did quarterbacks, we did pitchers, we did softball, we did fly fishermen. And we said, okay, we got motion analysis. And we looked, I probably looked at that stuff for two years before I said, okay, I got motion analysis, what does that mean? So finally, we started asking the right questions. And as luck would have it, I was the pitching coach with the Texas Rangers at, at that time. And we, we took it to spring training and we filmed every one of the young pitchers. And that was the big beginnings of Kevin Brown and Bobby Witt and Mitch Williams, um, Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez we started seeing and comparing what the best in the game do versus everybody else. So we modeled after the elite and trickled it down to, you know, all the way down to high school kids. And we came up with a model that was based on actually the measurements from what the best in the world did, you know, the Nolan Ryans and and the Drew Breeses and whatever, and backed into our teaching model from there. So you capture the data, you have the measurements that you quantify, then you come up with a deliverable or a teach that you can take on the field and help your coaching with. I hope that made sense. Absolutely. And again, I think we were the only coaching facility that had 3D motion analysis. There were a lot of medical facilities, and a lot of academics, a, a lot of gait analysis and walking and running. But we were the only f people in the field measuring rotational sports. Ahead of the game, Tom. Without knowing what we were doing. Sometimes, unco sometimes unconscious competence works. <laughs> um, so you've touched a little bit on the baseball. Now, Tom, can you tell me a little bit how you found out, you mentioned throwing a football before the Rangers games to prepare for pitching. Can you sure. talk a little bit about how you discovered that correlation between baseball and throwing, being a quarterback and throwing a football? Sure. Um, if I have to give credit where credit's due. <clears throat> when I was a, a pitching coach with the Padres, there was a, a trainer, their head trainer, a man named Dick Dent, actually let the pitchers throw a football when they were running. Um, in baseball, they call them touchdown tommies where a, a, you'll throw a baseball and the, the pitcher will run for it and it makes them work a little harder. 
Well, instead of throwing a baseball and touchdown Tommies, they threw a football. And we found that all our best pitchers could make it spiral without any issue at all. And we also realized that you can't throw a football wrong mechanically and make it spiral. And by throwing a football, it's a little heavier than a baseball. So there was some conditioning involved. The athletes got unstiff after a start. It helped their blood circulation and their functional strength. And it reinforced their mechanics. And that was before we actually got into the motion analysis to actually see that throwing a baseball and throwing a football is virtually the same thing. Interesting. You said throw a ball up and catch it. I, I mean, that sounds like what my brothers used to do with me all the time. Oh, yeah. And, and again, <laughs> no. And that's literally, that's how you become a better athlete, male or female, any sport, is by going out and playing. And the one thing I can say about technology, it, it actually reinforces what the good coaches have been teaching without knowing why for generations. And it's sped up the learning curve for younger coaches in all sports, male, female, and all rotational sports. So it's a good time to be basically a, a learner in sports if you're going to be a, a coach. Yeah. Uh, Tom, your name has been credited with helping Drew Brees, Tom Brady, just, you know, name dropping pretty much two of the most elite athletes right now in football. Um, but your name has been credited with elevating their game. Can you talk a little bit about how you first got introduced to Drew? Well, <clears throat> Drew was kind of a, a, a special circumstance. A, a buddy of mine, Cam Cameron, who at the time Drew, they were both with the Chargers at that time. And he gave me a call uh, and said, look, I got a, a young quarterback, Drew Brees. I'd like to bring by, uh, I'll sit in. We need to talk a little bit about mental emotional and game preparation, just some things. He's a special talent that I think he could learn a little bit from what you're doing in the baseball world. So it started to be just kind of a conversation about how to improve everything, mentally, physically, nutritionally, and biomechanically. And then I, I'm sure you're aware that um, that's, the second year that I was interacting with Drew was the year that it was a, a free agent year and he blew his shoulder up. Remember there was that fumble and he died yeah, for the so ball. Yeah, you knew him before the injury. I knew him before the injury and um, obviously went back, Dr. Andrews put him together. Um, he called me, at, Dr. Andrews called after the surgery and said, okay, um, I put his shoulder back together. It was a su successful surgery but I don't think he's ever gonna throw a football in the NFL again. And with that, I don't think he ever told Drew that. Nope. Uh, he, he, went through, he went through medical rehab um, with, uh, I'm drawing a blank on, he's a very famous rehab guy. When Drew was done with medical rehab, he came out, we happened to live close to each other. And for a whole summer, that whole summer, probably three and a half months, we went to the Pacific Athletic Club every morning at 6.30, 7 o'clock and just tried different things other than traditional weight training and recovering from a surgery. And it, it became the protocols for all our functional fitness stuff, all our body work stuff. And as luck would have it, from surgery to first game with the Saints, 
was about eight months later. So again, it was Drew Brees, which is, he's a unique human being and just brainstorming and trying things different from a really good surgery and a good medical rehab, our performance rehab and all those pieces put together um, gave Drew a chance to, to become the number one quarterback again and he's never looked back. And from that model and from Drew, uh, this quarterback community is a small little group and all of a sudden we got five or six NFL quarterbacks then 10 or 11 to where we are right now where uh, the company I'm a part of, 3DQB, we're probably working with 28 of the top 32 quarterbacks in the NFL and most of their backups. But my, I'm trying to retire, but my two main guys are Drew and Tom, Tom Brady. And when, they, when they're done playing, I'm, that's probably going to be it for me. But we're having as much fun now as we did 16, 17 years ago. It's all good stuff. Tom, I'm trying to retire too, so let me know the secret. <laughs> right, the secret is to be really good at what you're doing and have it return dividends without you doing a whole lot of work. So, but I'll tell you what, if you're like me, that's what you're going to miss the most when you retire is what you're trying to retire from. That would be my guess. Yeah, probably. Probably you're right. Uh, Tom, I have to tell you, we've done, or uh, well, I've seen a lot of interviews with Drew um, where he talks about that shoulder injury and we've interviewed Dr. Andrews and, you know, I've, I've seen countless interviews on that and I could be wrong, but I don't think I've ever heard that story of Dr. Andrews calling you and saying that he didn't think that he would ever throw a football again in the NFL. Yeah, that, and, and probably I'm, you know, stepping on my foot or putting my foot in my mouth, whatever you want to You're say. You're about to retire, it's fine. <laughs> but the, the phone call after the surgery, um, Jim, Dr. Andrews actually said it was a great surgery. It went really right. well. He was really pleased with the surgery. But to his knowledge, nobody ever came back to throwing form again after that traumatic of a surgery. Right. But again, if you, I, I just saw Dr. Andrews actually down in New Orleans six, seven months ago. And we talked about that very thing. And he said, we didn't know it was Drew Brees. If it would have probably been anybody else, wouldn't have played in the NFL again. But Drew Brees is a, is a special character. Right. So, Tom, you knew him before uh, the injury. You knew him with the Chargers and obviously now with the Saints. And you've trained him for uh, about 15 years now, correct? 16, 15, yes. 15 years now? Yeah. So yeah. talk about his, his work ethic. Did you know, you know, obviously people talk about it now because he's one of the greats, but did you know at the time that his work ethic was something special? Yes. And, you know, the, the one thing I can say as I get older and look back, um, and I saw it early on, the guys that were the superstars, and again, I was fortunate enough to be around the Nolan Ryans and, you know, the, 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 the guys in professional baseball that were Hall of Famers, that were superstars, their commitment to excellence, their desire to get 1% better every day, and their attention to detail, um, whether it was in a workout session, whether it was in a throwing session, whether it was in the gym, 
the, the guys that are those Hall of Famers, you can recognize their commitment. They're not only passionate, they're motivated, and they're committed to every day trying to get better. And I saw that in Drew right away. Was there any flipping of a switch of any sorts that you noticed in his work ethic or, or any of his workouts that you noticed after the shoulder injury, knowing him before and after? Um, I would like to say that, that I saw something hugely different. I did not. It's just what he was going after. His goals had to be rearranged. His thinking had to be reframed. His you know, wiring, kinesthetically, everything had to be reframed and rewired. And his commitment to the process to getting that done. I can remember one day we were in an aerobics room that was all mirrors. And all we did for the whole workout, about an hour, was we put five dumbbells and had five pound dumbbells, had him hold them what we call our flex T and just walk around and pretend his footwork was like he was going through a route tree, just keeping his arms above his head with five pounds and just moving his body while he was stabilizing his arms and his shoulder. And that was our workout for a given day. We tried things that, you know, were in retrospect, I know had never been done before, but if anybody would have been watching, they would have thought it was silly, stupid, or dangerous. And in effect, it's what we did all this last summer, this off season with the COVID-19 and whatever. We did things in Drew's backyard that if it would have been a regular off season, we would have never thought of. I mean, we did lacrosse, we did uh, tennis, we did uh, plow balls against the wall. We paddled around on a surfboard in his swimming pool. I mean, we did, we did things that we would have never done had it been a regular off season. So I guess it's that silver lining thing. You take the circumstances you're in and just have some fun getting creative and see what happens. So I think this, this year, because the circumstances out of our control will be as much of a new learning and a new commitment year as it was coming off of his shoulder surgery. That's my gut feel with this whole thing. Wow. Um, you know, you talked about this COVID-19 and having to, to rearrange your and Drew's training sessions. What did a, did a typical training session look like uh, pre-COVID and now, obviously, this summer? And I know you just touched on it, but can you shed some light on what they used to look like in a normal situation and now during this pandemic? Sure. Um, when he came to me, now... Uh, Drew has some, some other people in his bubble, uh, in his circle of, of, of friends. Uh, there's a guy, Todd Durkin, with Fitness Quest 10, yep. that he's known just as long as he's known me. And Todd kind of takes care of the overall conditioning base. In effect, I'm the functional strength and the throwing guy with Drew. So in a normal off-season, there'd be active rest, right after the season was over for a couple, three weeks. And then we get together and we plot out, okay, what do we want to get better at this year? And the last couple, three years, um, Drew is in a window of trainability that we call skill retention. There's basically a neurological window, a muscle window, 
a skill acquisition window, and a skill retention window. And the skill retention window is for the, the aging athlete, the 37, 38 year old to probably age 45. In that window, they have a tendency to lose flexibility and their nervous system gets compromised. So the last two years before this summer in the off season, we always worked hardest on speed with the nervous system and flexibility to go with strength. Well, this season, because we were limited with being able to get on a field that was a lot of backyard stuff, we had to figure out a way to get all that done. And his goal for the summer was to try to throw a 60-yard pass, try to prepare to throw a 60-yard pass. Well, I don't know if it's common knowledge out there, but Drew and I know that one mile an hour is one yard with a football. So we probably worked most of the summer without even touching a football. We threw two pound, one pound balls. A one pound ball is the equivalent of throwing a football. And early on we did testing to see what his, his shoulder joint and his elbow could handle in terms of intensity. Could he handle a fire hose or a garden hose? with the amount of energy that was going through his body. And through the testing and the, and the conditioning and the measurements, we realized that he could handle as much stress, as many foot pounds of energy as he needed to, to get in through his arm and out into the football. So we trained the first month to get him to throw a one pound ball, 60 miles an hour into a net. And he accomplished that actually about three weeks and one workout into a four-week process. Once he could throw the one-pound ball into the net 60 miles an hour, now we just had to build a strength base to maintain that and wait till we could get out on the field and actually see how it worked. So it took him about three and a half weeks to train his arm to throw a football 61 miles an hour with a one-pound ball into a net and then we started throwing the football three weeks ago. His first first day out, he popped a couple of 45, 50 yards like it was like he was 25 years old again. Mm. And his his last workout on Thursday last week, he threw a couple of balls 57, 58 yards with, without even trying. So his his goal for the offseason was accomplished. And again, it's things we would have normally never thought about except for COVID. And the fun thing about the relationship with Drew is that he trusts both of us to be just crazy enough to try something new. And most often with Drew, the new stuff actually makes him better. Remember, I got the easy job. I do the talking. Right. Drew, right. Has, Drew has to do all the work. <laughs> That's, yeah. If you would tell me, if you would, were to tell me that a NFL quarterback at his level would be training by going on a surfboard in his backyard pool, I would have told you you were crazy. Well, we are a little crazy, but that's what <laughs> makes it fun. And the fact that, that Drew is confident enough that some of our crazy stuff might work. I mean, it sounds like it comes out of nowhere, but I've never had um, a surfer with a bad arm in my, you know, 
25 years, 30 years of coaching, surfers never have bad shoulders or elbows. So we knew that that physical act of paddling a board and catching a wave and standing on a surfboard really contributed to the function and the strength of the shoulder. So I had no trouble with that. Um, obviously the tennis racket and swinging the tennis racket overhand and ground strokes and then the lacrosse thing, throwing a lacrosse ball with a lacrosse stick into a lacrosse net. I mean, we would have never tried that if it hadn't been for not being able to get out of his backyard. But all those things contributed to actually making him a more functionally strong quarterback with a, a, a nervous system like a 25-year-old. Like a so how did you and Drew come up with this plan of action um, to do all of this stuff in his backyard? Was it, you know, you two sitting down at his kitchen table, looking at film? Like what, what was the process like of figuring out how the heck you were going to train during this? Just like you said, we sat down and said, what are we going to do? How the, how the heck are we going to get a workout in today? What tools do we have available? What do you think about, let's go on back. Because I think his footwork, the thing that makes one of Drew's body have some of the best footwork in the NFL was the fact that he was a tennis player. And a tennis player arranging his body for ground strokes and arranging his body for an overhand serve is exactly what a quarterback needs to do in the pocket, escaping the pocket, throwing on the run, or throwing in the pocket. So we knew that tennis was a good cross-Pacific trainer. The lacrosse was actually Drew's idea, saying, well, if you look at what is required out of a lacrosse stick and throw it accurately, I think it'll help my torque or my disassociation between my you know, front shoulder, my front hip and my back shoulder. And it turns out that lacrosse is really a great teach for hip and shoulder disassociation slash torque. So again, uh, it was kind of a combination effort, both of us looking at stuff and saying, well, let's try this and see what it feels like. Fascinating. Tom, before I let you go, I have to ask, do you watch Saints games? I do. I, I watch. I, I literally make sure that I watch as many games as I can in the NFL. Yeah. But number one and number two are, are Drew and Tom. I definitely get all those. And then after games, we'll talk and take it from there. Wow. Do, do you know before he throws the ball, well, well, when the pass is in the air, if it was a good throw or not? Pretty much. I think the records show that Drew was, I think he's the most accurate quarterback in the history of the sport. He is the, the Greg, as Greg Maddox is to baseball, Drew Brees is to football. So I, I know he's going to be accurate no matter what, even when he's off platform. If true honesty, I just, I pray when I'm watching football games that he stays healthy. His process and what he does to be the quarterback that he is give me, gives me all the confidence in the world that he'll call the right play and make the right throw when the time is, when, it, when it's necessary. Now, you mentioned it, and I'm sorry, I know I, I need to let you go, but last question here. What do those post-game conversations look like between you and Drew? Is it, hey, you know, in the second quarter, I thought I could have, you know, done this better, this pass to Mike Thomas? What do those conversations look like? 
it, it basically goes like this. Uh, I'll call him, he'll call me. And it's, sometimes it's right after the game, but more often than not, it's the next morning. And he's an early riser like I am. So we'll text, are you up? Back and forth. If we're both up, we'll call. And he's usually in the film room. And I will have made a couple notes. I'll say like, hey, this, the, the second set of downs, your pass to the left to Thomas. It looked to me like your front side spun open a little bit. Looks like your timing was off. Did start, what, what caused that and why? And he'll cue it up and say, oh yeah, if you look, I got bumped or the, the, one of the offensive linemen stepped on my foot as I was coming out of the pocket and it threw my, in other words, we'll look for the, what the throw was, try to identify the problem, and then with that problem, identify what he needs to work on in his preparation for the next game. Did that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, absolutely. To, to be honest with you, it's never more than four or five passes a game mm -hmm. that we're talking about. And once we, once we look and identify what needs to be worked on, then setting up for the next game is a function of his time, his recovery, and his commitment to what he needs to do to be ready for the next Sunday. Tom, after every game, we do a post-game show, and we are live, and we're waiting for Drew to come out to the podium. So now that I know that you're the one responsible for me having to fill in all of that time, I might have to give you a call every once in a while and tell you, hey, we're waiting on Drew. Please hang up the phone and call him tomorrow. Yeah, now remember, I, I'm glad I said it's not always after the game. <laughs> it's usually the next morning. So I don't mind. Blame it on me. It's, you're not, it's not the first time and it won't be the last time. But when I, what I will say is Drew is really, really good at identifying what he needs to do to get better. And he, he's virtually egoless when it comes to preparation to play the game. And that's another trait of all these superstars. If it's going to make him better, um, you're part of the equation. Fantastic, Tom. I learned so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's do this again whenever you want. Okay. Of course, especially after the game. <laughs> okay. Have a blessed day. See you, you later. Too, Tom. Bye-bye. Thanks to Tom for joining us on the show today. I hope you learned as much as I did from Tom House. Well, earlier this week, general manager of the Saints, Mickey Loomis, spoke, as did head coach Sean Payton, so you don't want to miss those interviews available right now on NewOrleansSaints.com. I'm Caroline Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek, and we'll catch up next week.